Hello, and welcome to the RUF Stanford podcast. RUF Stanford is a ministry that relies 100% on the generosity of donations in order to serve the Stanford community. Feel free to support us by going to give2ruf.org. We hope you enjoy the sermon. I'm going to read Leviticus 1, uh, these first nine verses, and then jump right in into why we're reading it. If you're not familiar with Leviticus, it's the book everyone stops their annual Bible, uh, read the whole book in the year thing with. It's on Leviticus because it gets to weird stuff and has words in it that make us uncomfortable, like menstrual period and semen and things like that show up in Leviticus. Is everybody uncomfortable now? Yes. I am too, because um, I had to say those words in front of you. Actually, I didn't have to. I chose to. These aren't even my notes. I don't know. Anyways, I'm just trying to say, y'all, we're going to be real. Um, but um, I do something I, I try to do every winter quarter is read together uh, and sort through together something from the Old Testament. And I think it's important, and I'm going to make the case here in a second uh, very quickly, um, to read all of Scripture. And so I'm going to read it, and then we're going to talk about why. So this is the very beginning of the book of Leviticus. Um, This is on the heels of the Exodus event, if you're familiar with Old Testament history, when God delivers Israel out of slavery in Egypt. Um, And then he begins to give, and on the heels of that comes this book with all these kind of rules and regulations and ceremonies and rituals. That's where we are in Israel's history. Um, They're hearing from God. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons and priests shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall flay the burnt offering, cut it into pieces, and the sons of Aaron and the priests shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. And Aaron's sons and priests shall arrange pieces, the head and the fat and the wood that is on the fire on the altar, but its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water, and the priests shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. I pray that we would come at it with open hearts and open minds, things that actually only you can give us, Father God, and that we would begin to see in these pictures um, realities that we need to know. So be with us and teach us. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, so why Leviticus? And we're going to start just because of verse 1. That's the answer. Um, Leviticus is God's word, and that's trouble. And uh, verse 1 and 2 place a huge burden on anyone who calls himself a Christian, right? Because it says this, The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them. And that places a burden and an obligation on anyone who calls themselves a Christian. 
to deal with the fact that if you're a Christian, then you believe what the writer of Hebrews 4 wrote, which is that the Bible is the living and active word of God, or as Paul says to Timothy, that all of Scripture is breathed out from God. And the authority of any words are rooted in the identity of the speaker. So verse 1 means Leviticus has the same weight and authority as does all the stuff in the Gospels that we like that's kind of accessible, as well as all the stuff in the Psalms that we really connect with, as well as all the stuff in Paul's letters. But Leviticus has the same weight and authority, and that's trouble for us. And here's a way one friend of mine, Les Newsom, one of the, kind of the old RUFK campus ministers, this is the way he describes how Leviticus feels to a Christian. He says, Leviticus is like your drunk uncle at a wedding. It's like, yes, Yes, he is part of the family. We're not denying that. But conversations with him are really, really awkward. Uh, He doesn't make sense a lot of times. He can be pretty offensive. Uh, He's really incoherent. And the best way to deal with him is to ignore him and just make sure anybody from outside of the family doesn't get tangled up with him or stuck in a conversation with him. And if they do, you go and save them from the crazy drunk uncle Leviticus. He's embarrassing, but he is my uncle. He is my uncle, but he's really embarrassing. And, uh, and I have no idea what he's going to say to you. That's how we feel about Leviticus, right? I don't want to interact with him, and I hope other people don't. Yes, he's technically part of our family. We love him. The family wouldn't be the same without him. But I kind of wouldn't be sad if he wasn't at our wedding, right? <laughs> but this, these first two verses and the book of Leviticus are important for believers and skeptics alike. So wherever you find yourself, and I want to address firstly, if you're skeptical, if you're, if you're kind of testing waters and exploring things here, wherever you are, having left the church, never come into the church or something like that. Um, this, is one of, this book is one of the reasons we find the Bible implausible. Uh, maybe more than implausible, maybe even offensive or dangerous. It's one of the books that, first of all, opens the Bible up to the claim that, like, it's archaic and irrelevant. Because chapter immediately one, uh, chapter one immediately jumps into these uh, sacrificial rituals, something called a burnt offering, and there are animals being slaughtered, and there's blood being splashed everywhere, and it feels like, okay, yeah, this is what I'm talking about. This is ancient religion. This is the pre-modern world. Uh, we live in a clean, advanced, sophisticated world. This is barbaric. This is archaic. It's not just archaic. It's even irrelevant. Right? How does, how does this apply to my life today? Because here's what I'm dealing with. I'm a little insecure about who my friends are. I've got to sort through this drama in my house or my rooming situation or roommates. I'm nervous about school. I have P-sets to do. I'm juggling a lot of, juggling a lot of kind of semi-commitments. I can't stand my parents. I'm jealous of other people. I might be depressed. And you're telling me this guy killing a goat at the front of a temple is somehow relevant to that, right? It's archaic. feels irrelevant. But those aren't even the biggest problems with it. Um, It's Leviticus that makes the Bible feel inconsistent and even dangerous. And not dangerous in like a fun way, like offensive. Um, like Leviticus has the rules against not wearing polyblend shirts. So not wearing a shirt that's both like, that has two different fabrics blended together. Like, what is that? It has the rules about not planting two crops in the same field together, right? This is weird. But here's the other thing, is it also has these other rules like love your neighbors yourself. 
And here's how it lays Christianity open to the claim of inconsistency. How can the God of love that we like endorse these rules like, yes, absolutely love your neighbors yourself, but then pick and choose other parts of Leviticus to completely ignore? Right? Because you, you, you just choose the pieces that you find appealing and then just kind of pretend that the other parts don't exist. Right? We're going to talk about that. But inconsistency is not even the biggest problem. Leviticus has rules about skin diseases, like I said, about semen, about all kinds of prohibition on sexual relations. It talks about homosexuality. It's an extensive list of all kinds of things. It has severe consequences for a lot of the discretions it talks about. Women are excluded from worship because of their menstrual cycle. People are struck down for entering the tabernacle the wrong way. This feels like the kind of religion that the world is trying to get over with right now, right? Trying to get through. And let me say something. To feel that way about reading the book of Leviticus, I would encourage you to read it this quarter uh, wherever you are, it's, it's, a fascinating, it's a fascinating read. I, I, my guess is if you never read it, you, you'll be like, I had no idea this kind of stuff was in the Bible. But there's a right instinct in those feelings. This is archaic, irrelevant, this is inconsistent and offensive. Um, that's a challenge for Christians. And it's right, it's right for you to ask, Christian or not, how are, you, how are we going to say that this is God's word, but casually dismiss this verse that says, verse 1, it's God's Word, just like all the other parts of the Bible we like. And also, what we know is it's integral to Jesus' ministry Himself as He summarizes the second half of the law by quoting Leviticus 19. Love your neighbor as yourself. And so, as we think about that inconsistency, and we're going to process those questions over the next couple of weeks, here's what I would suggest to you in terms of kind of withholding dismissiveness. Like, don't be so dismissive so quickly. Um, there are parts of your life, there are details of your story and your day that don't make sense without the context of the whole. Uh, I'm not, again, I'm not saying this isn't a challenge, but we have to be careful not to dismiss something without considering it in the context of the whole. And Leviticus is referred to and spoken about and talked about all throughout Scripture. And let me give you an example of what I mean about having context. Yesterday, Elizabeth and I were scrolling through our children's Google Hangouts chat history, and you're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe you did that. Y'all are going to do it. <laughs> and you should. Um, so I don't feel guilty. Don't try to make me feel guilty. And I actually recommend when your parents to do it. Here's what we found. Lauren is a bully. Oh. Right? I'm not going to name the child who shared that little detail. But we saw that comment in there. And it's like, oh my gosh, she is so mean. Like, And Lauren's one of her best friends. And she's sitting here calling her names behind her back. And, you know, bully is kind of the worst thing you can be called now. Um, but here's the thing. Either she's mean or there's broader context. Maybe my first reaction is not accurate. Because you know what she can do in Google Hangouts? You can delete parts of the conversation. And what we found out is Lauren's one of her best friends. And just like we tease each other in natural relationships... When we learn the broader context of the conversation, they're joking together. In a weird way, her teasing is a form of intimacy, right? But you completely miss that without the context, without the full conversation. If all you see is Lauren is a bully. 
my intention is for us to honestly examine the book of Leviticus um, in the context of the story of God's saving love that shapes all of Scripture. And it's still challenging, and it is absolutely cumbersome. Uh, but what I would suggest is that it's the wis- that the book of Leviticus is actually the wisdom of God contextualizing His holiness and His love for a people in a way that they could understand. And actually in a way that actually offers you the opportunity to deepen your understanding of God, ourselves, and Jesus today. It troubles the reader to read Leviticus. That's the purpose. And that's actually how God intends to bring you into a deeper understanding of himself. Of himself. If you're a Christian, so if you're skeptical and undressed, it's, it's archaic, it's irrelevant, it's inconsistent, it's offensive. But there's context. But we're still going to be honest. If you're a Christian, here's what else the book of Leviticus, why we need to read it. If the, if the one who made the universe has made himself known at various times and in various cultures through these stories, the stories of the Bible, and his intention was to make himself known so that we could discover who he is and what it looks like to have a relationship with him. Right? That's the goal of Scripture itself. Well, think about this. Here at a place of beautiful, scholarly, academic inquiry. Right? Incredible research goes on at Stanford. Research discovering the complexity of the entire universe on a subatomic level up to a cosmic level and everywhere in between. Right? We've devoted hundreds of millions, raised billions of dollars to do that, and we're not the only academic institution doing it. Billions and billions, if not trillions of dollars, are devoted to the study of the entire universe on a subatomic level to a cosmic level, and we're still scratching the surface. We know that, right? If that's the case, what would you expect beginning to understand and know the Creator? Would you expect it to be simple? the one who made all of this. Getting to know the one who made it is probably going to be a troubling process. It's probably going to feel unmanageable. And actually, I would say it makes more sense that it, you should to feel unnerved, to feel like you can't handle it, to feel like it's challenging, to feel like there are things you can't reconcile, that it would evoke more than just feelings of calm or peace, but actually inv- uh, provoke consternation or anger or confusion or hope or paradox or worship or humility or awe, a whole spectrum of ways to react to the text. And it actually might be the reason that your personal religious experience has fallen flat, has gotten thin. You're like, Where, where's, where's power? Where is vibrancy in my spiritual life? It's boring. It might be because you haven't read Leviticus, and I really mean that, that you've actually stayed in the shallow end of the pool. And I would wager that if you read Leviticus and if you meditated on it and you actually let it say what it says, then you're going to encounter a God that you can't manage, that you can't contain, that you can't describe. And that's probably what we should have expected. Instead of the disappointing errand boy that we usually make God into. And this is the thing. Kings make really disappointing errand boys. And this is the way... One pastor who planted his church by preaching through Leviticus, this is the way he's talked about it. He said, I actually believe 
that the biblical text is a living and breathing word. And the first time I seriously attended a church, our pastor preached the book of Leviticus for a year, verse by verse. Yes, that's right, menstrual blood. You're like, how many times is Brent going to say that? I don't know. I don't want to say it much more. It's in the quote. Goat, sacrifice, no shellfish, all those things. And if you're this moment, you're smiling or laughing or thinking that's crazy, what have you just said about the biblical text? Do you have a canon within a canon? Either you believe that God speaks through His entire text, or you stick with the evangelically approved texts that are tamed down enough for the local congregation. We have no desire to tame the text, but to continually insist that it would enough work, or to continually insist that it would enough work, it'll all make sense or line up because life doesn't always line up. We love the scriptures and we want them to sweep us off our feet. That's how he talks about Leviticus. It's trouble. You should read it. It's good. Leviticus is God's word and there's good news. There's beauty in it. And if you've ever heard some version of this, I was, I was talking with somebody a couple of days ago where someone had said, yeah, your ideas about love and religion, they're, just, they're sentimental, they feel reductionistic, they feel naive. And I think we all feel that at times, maybe you've heard that at times. Leviticus will dispel that pretty quickly. Um, the way one of my friends described what it means to be healthy as a person, this is a campus minister at South Carolina, Sammy Rhodes, who did our fall conference two years ago. He said, if you talk, he said, if you talk to mental health professionals, one of, the, one of the summary statements of what health, full-orbed, whole health as a person is this way. It means a progressive ability to live like adult, an adult in reality. That's what it means to be healthy as a person, all the way around, in every aspect of your life. An increasing ability to live like an adult in reality. And what he meant by that is that you understand the world and you understand yourself and you understand God as things really are. Not as how you want them to be, but as they actually are and you deal with it. And growing into that kind of health and flourishing means that all of our sneaky ways of denying and twisting and altering and misunderstanding and hiding and coping lies are confronted by reality as it actually is and the reality of who our Creator is. And what happens in Leviticus is God deploys Ritual dramas. We're going to talk about that for a second. Ritual dramas to bring us into reality. And it's actually genius. And I'm going to talk to you why. But before we get to that, He is the creator and sustainer of all there is and will be. He is overall and in all. Genesis and Exodus are actually written to make those points. He governs all. We are His creations as well as the world that we live in. He's the real behind the real. He's in all and above all. He's the ultimate reality. Which actually means for you personally, the eternity that He has set in your heart, in the heart of every man and woman. That is the human uneasiness that we have with the finitude and disappointment of everything in this world. Right? The, the disappointment, the low level, the thing that happens after we win at work or we win at sex or we win at alcohol or we win at winning or we win at family or we, the success, the friends, all the good things, the uneasiness that comes afterwards is the, is the blinking yellow light on your dashboard that God gave you in His goodness. It's the eternity in your heart that you have so that you'll have an enduring sense that there's a deeper reality than what I wanted or what I thought. And the primary that question you have to ask to begin to live in reality is who is God and what is the deal between Him and me? That's the most important question. 
And so if you're, if you're not a Christian, I would just add, implore you about this. Don't ignore the blinking light on the dashboard. Don't medicate it. It's an invitation given by God to explore the real world. Leviticus is actually an intensely graphic drama God actually crafted to invite you into a relationship with Him. Let's talk about that for a second to close. First this, symbols reveal reality. This is instrumental to understanding Leviticus. Symbols reveal reality. Here's what I mean by that. Our girls, they're in 5th and 7th grade now, which is a little bit sad for me. I loved kindergarten, preschool, first, second grade. I loved that era. And um, they make, I mean, we're burning down, we're just chopping farce down for how many things they put on construction paper from like preschool till second grade and how much stuff they bring home. Um, Sorry about that. But I can't throw that stuff away. It's a constant conversation between Elizabeth and me about what we should throw away. I have boxes and boxes of it in the attic because I don't want to throw it away. And one of the things that they make is you remember the, uh, the first time you learn about the structures of a flower and you make a craft where it's a flower and you label the petal and the, the pistil and the stigma and the style and all that. You remember this? You remember this? And they make it out of like construction paper and buttons and like macaroni noodles and all this kind of stuff, right? What is the purpose of a first grader making this kind of craft? Here's the tougher question. Is it a flower? What do you tell a first grader when they say, do you like my flower? Do you go, that's not a flower? (laughs) No, because you're a nice person. And you understand actually something very sophisticated is happening when someone says, is this a flower or do you like my flower? Because the answer is, is this a flower, is yes and no, right? Yes, it's a flower in that it teaches the fundamental structures and functions of a flower, It's a great educational exercise to have a child make a craft like that and call it a flower. Absolutely. Do you like my flower? Absolutely. Is it a flower? The answer is also no, right? But what does it do? What does the flower, what does the macaroni flower do? It prepares the child's imagination and gives real understanding to real flowers, right? A relationship with God is far more complex. Not only that, God's purpose in your life is not simply to ra- that you rationally comprehend some theological ideas. A relationship with God is a life-transforming, life-flooding thing that changes everything. He intends to get into your plans and into your work and into your imagination and into your sorrows and your fears and your friendships and your family and your ambition and your hopes and your thoughts and your romance and your sexuality and your money and your weekdays and your weeknights and your days, your mornings. And He intends to bring His presence and the implications of who He is into every corner of your life. And to do so means that when He teaches, He is after far more than you simply logically comprehending some concepts. Right? Because for something to do that in our lives, personal transformation takes more than simply knowing the data. Not less than, but certainly more than. So when He communicates Himself, so in, in understanding that, because He made us, He communicates himself through far more dramatic means. So imagine what it felt like in the scene of chapter 1. Right? 
how, how experiencing the verses of chapter 1 would impact the worshiper. Ima- someone walked down a road in a rural Hebrew village with a sheep, with a, with a rope tied around its neck, yanking it along. That's a visceral, tactile experience. It's time-consuming, right? It's a sheep from your stock that's annoying. And, and all he knew, in some respects, right, is, I have to bring this with me to worship. There's a lot of investment here, right? He's yanking it down the road. Okay, then he gets to worship, and he has to put his hand on the head of the sheep. It's, oh, he's got to put your... You got, this is a big deal for God, right? Okay, he knows what's about to happen. He's aware that, sacrifice, that this, the sheep's about to be killed. And God said... When you do it, before you do it, I want you to lay your hand on your sheep. No matter what you don't know, right? If you're coming into this completely blind, that experience, the actual physical experience of doing that before entering into this place that, that represents God's presence, something is registering with you, me and the sheep are connected. God wants me to connect with the sheep some way before it goes in. Right? It takes nothing to know that the experience presses it upon you. You don't have to have any theology to understand that, right? And then the next thing happens is he cuts the sheep's throat. And then the next thing that happens is there's blood all over his hands and he's fling, and the priests fling it on the altars. Again, you've got to get into the visceral and tactile and smelly nature of this to think, oh, this would have a profound impact on a worshiper, on someone trying to come into God's presence. Participating in that drama has far more impact on your whole person than explaining the drama, right? It would rattle your very... You would feel nervous. Your heart would race. You would sweat a lot. Imagine how physical the experience is. Your body is responding to the intensity of this moment. Your heart is racing. You're wondering why. You're feeling confused but compelled, right? This is really important. Man, I really don't understand what's happening here. You feel undone. And now, when you're done and there's blood everywhere, the priest is saying, hey, you are clean and God is pleased. Okay. How weird is that? How much would that undo you? How confusing would it be? Now, let's go back to macaroni flowers. That's easier, right? The Bible wants you to know this is the macaroni flower craft. Even even the intensity of this scene is actually a shadow of reality. But it teaches you about reality. And the writer of Hebrews addresses this scene in Leviticus when he says, that's a copy or shadow of the true heavenly reality. What does a shadow or a copy do? The same thing the flower craft does. It shows you the shape of reality so that when the real thing comes, you can understand it and engage it. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And exploring the drama of these shadows actually unlocks the profundity of the cross. If Jesus ever feels boring to you, read Leviticus. That's actually what it's there for. It reveals reality. It brings you into reality. It maps your experience of life onto the real world. Here's the second. Symbols reveal reality. Here's the second thing. Last point. Rituals train you to live in reality. Here's what I mean. I've talked about this before. 
your friends and your family, whether they've said so or not, have noticed that you've changed since you've been here. Whether you're a freshman or senior, it doesn't matter. You talk and dress a little bit more like Stanford and a little bit less like home. And here's the big one. You actually value things that are valued here a little bit more, and you value the things you valued at home a little bit less. You know this. You, you, you implicitly understand it. Here's why. The reason why is because the power of a ritual is not just in the drama of the scene. The power of a ritual is also in the habit of doing it over and over. This is what I mean by that. What do you think happens to someone who wakes up, goes to class, does P-sets, talks about blockchains and startups and Google, and then does it tomorrow, and then does it tomorrow and does it for four consecutive years? You're a different person on the other side. The habit shapes you. The ritual shapes you. Right? Certain things that were never important to you are now of crucial importance to you. Things that used to be crucially important to you, you don't even think about. You've dramatically changed as a person. But here's the thing, right? Stanford and Silicon Valley don't form a complete picture of reality. You know this, even though sometimes you lose sight of it because it feels like this is everything in the world, right? Because your peace set feels like everything in the world, whatever it is. Your drama feels like everything in the world. The, the habits and rituals of this place, I'm not saying it's bad. I'm saying it is incomplete. And if you immerse yourself in the world here and assume that it forms a complete picture of reality, you'll be a deluded and ultimately harmful person because you have lost touch with how the world... Among other things in the book of Leviticus, there's a lot of blood. That's actually really good for us. It's good for you to read this and imagine the pictures and the scenes it's talking about that the people engaged. Because here's the thing about it. Life in the real world is really bloody. Despite the sterile context we actually live in right now. To just see blood is to be reminded that today, blood was spilt all over the globe in numbers that would grieve us deeply and wouldn't let us sleep tonight if we were actually honest about them. Life is bloody. It's far more bloody than it is sterile. Something is wrong with the world. And don't let the lack of blood, of your contact with blood at Stanford, cause you to forget that. You'll be deceived if you do. I began reading a book uh, a couple, last week called Suffering in the Heart of God, and it's written by a trauma specialist who goes in to really dark situations globally. Anytime something's going on, a genocide or anything like that, after those things are over and just does trauma care, like psychological trauma care. And she says one of the greatest things that we can do is go into the slums of the world and try to help people without ever dealing with the realities about where the slums came from. And if you don't recognize and also deal with the fact that the slum in the heart of man, the slum in you, and the slum in my heart, is absolutely how the slums in the world were created. They came from us. So how they came, where they came from. Genocide came from us. And if you're not dealing with the slum in your heart, then you're not doing anything worthwhile. What's happening in Leviticus is the rituals of sacrifice tell us what's wrong between me and God and that what's wrong in the world is in me. It's not out there. We love blaming it on out there. My favorite thing is blaming it on out there. I'm trying to not be dismissive of millennials anymore. I like blaming it on millennials for a while. But 
What Leviticus is telling us is that the slums in the world came from here. The deep traumas in the world came from here. You're not helping if you're walking into the deep traumas and you're going to solve the world's problems and you're not dealing with the fact that they all originated in the human heart and in your heart and mine. And we're only going to make superficial progress if we don't see the slums start there. And here's the thing is, we're going to forget tomorrow. We're so prone to forget tomorrow. And so what we need is to wash, rinse, repeat. And not for shame, but for renewal. And slowly what will happen is the story of God drawing near to us through sacrifice to heal us, to make us clean by Jesus' blood on the basis of His grace. That story becomes your habitual and even instinctual way of engaging all of life. Your weekends and your weekdays, your time, your money, your sexuality, your friends, your family, your ambitions, your plans, your work, your future, your past. These habits are how you come into living, into the reality of God's presence and how God's grace begins to orient all of your life. The term for this kind of living is holiness. Becoming a wholehearted person, a person for whom God himself becomes the thing that orients all aspects of your life. And you begin to long to see the character of his kingdom shape and heal a hurting world, both the world inside of you and the world outside of you. One commentator said it like this, Leviticus is actually really good news for sinners who need pardon, for women who are vulnerable, for the poor who yearn for freedom, for the marginalized who seek dignity, dignity, for animals that demand protection. All this is in Leviticus. Go read it. It's amazing. And for a creation that stands in need of care. That's the character of his kingdom. And yet, Leviticus only offers a shadow of that hope, the reality to which these shadows point, the supreme expression of it, and God's love for you as His Son, Jesus. Jesus is actually talking about Leviticus in John 5 when He says, if you believed Moses, Leviticus is Moses' book, if you believed Moses, you would have believed me because He was writing about me the whole time. To study the complexity and trouble and beauty of Leviticus is to get to know Jesus more deeply. That's why we're reading it. Let's pray.